Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be lighting the candles of the Advent wreath. Each week has a different theme, and this, and we're going to have different people from the congregation come and uh, help us with that process. So this week, we want to invite the Weatherman family to come up and light our first candle, which is the Hope Candle. Today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word meaning coming. The season of Advent reminds us that Jesus is coming, that he is on his way, but right now the world is not yet ready as it should be. We begin Advent by reflecting on the hope. The hope candle reminds us that the hope of Christ's coming presented throughout Scripture. During this week, we remember the longings for a remain of Redeemer expressed by the prophets and the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. We also focus upon the present hope we have in Christ. As First Peter says, that Christians are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And finally, we look to our future hope of his return to set the world right once and for all. As we come to light the first candle of Advent, let us again hear the prophecy of Isaiah that tells us our hope in his returning. This is Isaiah 2, 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to worship you, and for this great reminder of our hope the hope that we have today, and the hope that we have for our future. Lord, I pray that you would be present with us as we worship, both here and around the city, gathering online. God, I pray that this morning you would be with us. And we pray this the way you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture passage this morning is Nehemiah 7, 4 through 8, 18, but we're just going to read... Uh, Nehemiah 7:73b through 8:12. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. 
They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And beside him stood Mataniah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseiah. On his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashbadiah, Zechariah, and Meshullam. Ezariah opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law where the people were standing there. They read the book of the law from God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, Today, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and spend and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. So our passage this morning centers around a six-hour public Bible reading. And I think we could have nearly interacted that for you, reenacted that this morning if we had read the whole passage that got assigned to me. Um, thankfully, we didn't. In chapter 7, which we did not read out loud, uh, God, he leads Nehemiah to populate the city that they've built. And he, in that process, quotes almost verbatim this genealogy from Ezra chapter 2. Um, and it's just a genealogical list of all the exiles who had returned. And I'm sure I could have made you stand while we read through all of that, but instead we're just going to focus this morning on the highlights of chapter 8. And this is a fascinating chapter. In some ways, this is the crowning moment uh, from everything else that's happened so far. The people in this passage, they have journeyed from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem. 900 miles. They have worked day and night rebuilding the broken city walls 
of Jerusalem. Sometimes they had to keep their weapons on their belts to protect themselves while they did it because they had so much opposition. And now they're finally finished. And now it's time to dedicate this town to its intended purpose, the worship of God. And so they begin, like you would, with a huge celebration. And at the end of this celebration, there's going to be a reading of God's law. And the reason why we're taking the time to study this this morning and look at it in so much depth is because as we read this story, you see a heart-level reaction from these people. The kind of reaction that is honestly something we all desperately need. This passage shows us how we as individuals, but also how we as a body, how we as a church, can be powerfully transformed by an encounter with the living God. What we find here is a great example of what happens when the law of God and the grace of God meet and become real to us. So, that's where we're going today. Three requirements for a genuine encounter with God. That's what I want to talk about. And they're these. First, the law of God must cut us. Second, the grace of God must heal us. And thirdly, the joy of God must propel us. Three encounters to a genuine encounter with God. Three requirements to a genuine encounter with God. So the first one, the law of God must cut us. Let's try to imagine this a little bit more. Let's put ourselves in this scene. Like I said, this is the moment that everyone has been waiting for. There's excitement in the air. Ezra the priest has come out, and he is on this giant platform, and he is surrounded by 13 other leaders from the community. The people are all there, and they are anxious to hear the law of God read out loud. And on top of that, they have Levites, professional religious people, experts in the law, and they're out in the crowd moving around. Their point out there is they're trying to explain everything that's being taught so that, so that whatever is read is clear. So that it's understandable, so people know what they're hearing. These are our personal sermon explainers, right? Don't you, don't you wish we could have those at the church sometimes? And Ezra stands up, and the whole crowd stands up. And then he praises God. And then the whole crowd goes wild, right? You saw it with exclamation points. Amen! Amen! And then they bow down on their faces, and they worship and they settle in to listen. These people, they're desperate to hear what the law of God is going to reveal. Now let's fast forward a few hours later, and the party atmosphere is gone. Nobody is celebrating anymore, but instead we read that the people are weeping as they listen to the words of the law. It says it in verse 9. The crowd is sobbing. They're consumed with guilt. As the teachers have moved throughout the crowds and they've been explaining the law, they're starting to see clearly 
what it means that God is holy, that he is righteous, that he is perfect. And they, the people of Israel who are listening, they realize that they have offended him. All those commands they read, they had broken so many of them. And they start to realize that all the things that they had heard, well, it means they shouldn't really be at the party at all. They should not be welcomed in this party. They have come face to face with the reality of their guilt. So let's, let's pause at that moment for just a second and think about that. Because I kind of want to address you know, everybody in this room, both Christians and maybe non-Christians who might be here uh, looking for some answers. See, guilt is a universal feeling. Guilt is something that we all share. We all have this basic intuition, don't we, that, that we're not the way we're supposed to be. And there's different ways that we can address that feeling. Some psychologists will tell you that what you really need to do is push through that feeling and become okay with yourself. You need to learn to accept yourself. That your guilt is, is not really anything. It's just the product of society or, or maybe some things that are hanging around from the family that you grew up in. But you need to learn to accept yourself as you are. And, I, and you know what? I, I don't want to dismiss that entirely, actually, because there is some validity to that. There are things that we feel guilty about that we probably shouldn't. But what I want to say is that cannot be the only solution. That cannot possibly explain how every human being deals with this nagging feeling that we should be better than we are. A better friend, a better son or daughter, a better husband or wife, a better roommate, a better boss, a better employee, just a better person. And in those moments, when you are aware of that lacking in yourself, having someone come up to you and say, don't, don't worry about that. Those are just feelings. Well, that's not enough. Because we know that there's some truth down there. There's some truth behind our guilt, isn't there? Uh, I heard an illustration from the movie Schindler's List. It's about 25 years old now, but maybe some of you have seen it. It, it won Academy Awards. It's the story of Oscar Schindler, this man who rescued 1,100 Jews during the Holocaust by employing them in his factory. And towards the end of the movie, there is this scene where he's surrounded by all these people that he's saved. And one of the men comes up from the crowd and presents him with a ring with Hebrew inscription on it that says, whoever saves one life saves the whole world. But in that moment, instead of responding with gratitude, Schindler, he starts to cry. Do you remember this? He starts to weep. And he says, I could have gotten more out. And he looks at his watch, and he says, this watch, why did I keep this watch? That car, I could have sold my car. That could have been three more people. It's an amazing moment. This, this guy who did so much 
still knew he hadn't done enough. He still knew that he could have done more. He still knew that despite all the good he had done, he still wasn't innocent. All that good. And he was still guilty. And he was right. Human lives are more valuable than a watch. Nobody's going to argue that, right? Human lives are more valuable than a car. He had done more than probably anyone else, and he had still missed the mark. And if that's true for him, what about you? What do we do with this nagging feeling that we're missing the mark? Well, we can't just dismiss it. For the people in the crowd, they seem to have been really caught off guard by what they heard. Did you notice that? In the beginning, they're excited, they're ready to hear. But as soon as Ezra got up there and he unrolled that scroll, they realized they were getting more than they bargained for. And, and look, these people, it's important that you know, they weren't new to Scripture. If anything, these people in the crowd, they were more committed to their faith than, than anyone else. They had, like I said, they had come 900 miles from Babylon to be here, most of that on foot. They rebuilt the city of Jerusalem from rubble because they, they believed God's promises. They had a profound faith. And I tell you that because this was almost surely not the first time they had heard the law. But something was different this time. Maybe it was those teachers that were moving through the crowd, helping things to make sense. The Sermon on the Mount is like that, you know. Jesus does that in the Sermon on the Mount. He just takes the law that everyone knows, and he just helps it to, to make sense. He says things like, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And to anyone who murders, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now what's he doing there? He's not giving a new law. He's just exposing what the law has always meant. And maybe that's what happened that day. Maybe that's what we just read about as these people come face to face with their guilt. But as they do, you see that it hits them in the heart. They wept. That is a beautiful and appropriate response to the law of God. That's what should happen to us when we realize that there is a God who loves us, who's given us everything that we have, and we have lived in rebellion against him. That we've rejected his love, that we've rejected his instruction, and we've chosen instead to go our own way. Scripture tells us the truth, that our feeling of guilt is not just a feeling. It's a reality. And that should cut us. It should cut us to the heart. Now, up to this point, I've kind of been talking about our, our universal awareness of guilt. But I want to address 
Christians here for a minute, especially, because if I'm being honest, sometimes I wonder about the church. Why don't we weep like this more often? Sometimes I, I wonder, are we, as the church, are we really willing to hear what God has to say? Are we willing to hear the full breadth and the full depth of God's law? Do we want to understand his commands? Or do we shrink them down to the bare minimum so we can feel like we're keeping them or justify ourselves when we think we aren't? Are we buying into a view of, of righteousness that is more, has more to do with checking boxes than it actually does with loving God and loving people? Now, I want to say something here that might sting a little bit. And I prayed about it, but I think the Lord is in it. And so I'm going to go for it. You know, Jesus says in his, that the most important commands are these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Basic stuff. But in the short time that I've been here, I have seen many instances in this church where people are willing to talk behind each other's backs, gossip, complain, post things online, send emails, and just generally assume the worst about each other. Whether it's what time we're going to have a service or what room we're going to meet in, or whether we're going to wear masks, or how we're going to decorate for Christmas, or what instruments we're going to play. And I bring it up only because I have a deep sense of hope for this church. But I want us to see our sin for what it is. See, Satan would love to take this church down by dividing us over petty things that don't matter. Folks, God doesn't care if we play a kazoo on Sunday morning. He cares we love one another. Especially when we disagree. Jesus says the world will know we're his disciples by what? When we love one another. Are we doing that? And if not, are we willing to let God's law expose our sin? See, these people, they were shocked by the full weight of God's law. They were stunned to find out that they were so far off base. They thought they were the good guys. How had this happened? And they were devastated to find out that the guilt that they suspected was not only true, but it was worse than they thought. 
And that's true for us. The law of God exposes us as we really are. We are guilty. And not just a little bit. The law of God teaches us that we, in fact, are a lot worse than we think we are. And it's painful. But if you truly encounter God, that is the first thing that has to happen. We have to let the law cut us to the heart. But the second thing that has to happen is that the grace of God must heal us. Our passage goes on in verse 9. It says, Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and spend, send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. And the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not grieve. You hear it three times in a row. These people have to be told, Do not mourn. Do not grieve. Do not weep. You get the sense reading it that this isn't what the leaders had wanted to happen. This was supposed to be a day of celebration. It was supposed to be this moment of triumph. And thousands of people weeping in the streets, well, that, that kind of ruins the party vibe, doesn't it? You know if you've ever been around someone crying, which I know we all have. It doesn't really help either to just say, stop crying. Stop it. Be happy. Have a party. But that's not really what they did. See, the, the, the crowd, they were responding properly to the truth that they'd heard. They were experiencing the pain of their sin, and I'm sure some of them for the very first time. But when Nehemiah spoke, he didn't just say, do not grieve. He said, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it worked. The people go off and they have a big party. <laughs> and if you read the rest of the chapter, you see that they continued to celebrate. They went on to have a feast where for eight days in a row they kept hearing the law and they were able to hear it and continue to party. It says day after day, from the first day to the last, as we're read from the book of the law, and they celebrated. So what happened? What made them able to tolerate what God had to say? When we are in that place, like they are, when we're in that moment of conviction, there's really only one remedy. We have to look to the truth of God's grace and his mercy. So what is it that's so special about those words? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, when the people were weeping, like I said, they were right. They were doing the right thing. Our guilt is a problem. Tim Keller, I think he said that our guilt is the only real problem that God ever faced. 
Think about it. If, if God can say, let there be light, and there is light, that's no problem. God can say, let there be land, and there's land, that's no problem. But God cannot say, let there be forgiveness, and there's forgiveness. In the same way that a, a just judge can't say to a murderer, I forgive you, you're off the hook. Right? If, if a judge did that, he wouldn't be just. To the people who had been harmed by that crime, he wouldn't be loving. It's not possible for God to just declare forgiveness to the guilty. There has to be a reckoning for sin. Guilty people must pay the penalty. But in this moment, it's really just a, a beautiful moment of, of shorthand. <laughs> Nehemiah preaches the gospel in a sentence. He preaches hope for the sinners when he says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So what is that? What is the joy of the Lord? Well, for the answer, the quickest place to go is to turn to the book of Hebrews, where it's laid out for us quite clearly. Hebrews chapter 12, the joy of the Lord. He says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was ahead of him on the other side of the cross. And what was that? It was your salvation. The joy of the Lord is the redemption of his people. You hear me? The joy of the Lord is the redemption of his people. You know what? Say that. Repeat that. The joy of the Lord is the redemption of his people. Say it. I'm sorry to make you guys respond. I know we're Presbyterians, but it's important. The joy of the Lord is the redemption of his people. The people of Israel found joy in this moment, in this place of despair, because they knew that their God loved them with an unfailing love. And at this moment in history, right, this is way before Jesus. They didn't know the full story yet. I mean, they were just building the walls right now. But they were trusting that their God was going to come through. The author of Hebrews does us a favor. He connects the dots. He tells us that because we are guilty, God himself came down to take the punishment, to pay it for us to give us his righteousness as a gift, to declare us perfect under the law. And this is week one of Advent, right? This is what we're here for. This is what we're celebrating, right? The arrival of Christ's birth. It was good news of great joy. These people whose hearts had just a moment ago been in the pit who had been on the, on the floor, they were, they were weeping. All of a sudden, they are filled with great joy because they remember the promise of the gospel. Yeah, we're worse than we think we are. But in Christ, we are more loved 
than we can ever imagine. And those are the first two moves of a real encounter with God. Those are two things that has to happen. The law has to cut us, but the gospel heals us. But it doesn't stop there. There's a third piece, and that is this. The joy of the Lord propels us. The joy of the Lord propels us to change, to go. And this is something I want to be sure to say, because it is important for us to have good theology, right? It's important for us to have this theology of law and grace. We need to have that down pat if we're going to have faith. But it is worthless if it doesn't impact our lives. The gospel heals us so that. The gospel heals us so that we can live joyful lives of surrender before God. The Westminster Catechism, number one, right? I think we, we, we have that one down pretty good. The chief end of man. What is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of life? It says it's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When we recognize that Christ has taken away our guilt, when we realize that we are loved, that we are accepted by God purely out of His grace because He delights in our redemption, when that becomes personal, then we find joy in following Him. When the gospel becomes personal, we find joy in following Christ, even when it hurts. Even when it means we're going to hear some things about ourselves we don't like. Like these people did, right? Even if it means that we have to take the low place sometimes. Or that we're not going to get our way. Even when it means trusting God when things are uncertain. Or when we just don't like the way they're going at all. One of my favorite verses lately has been John chapter 15, verse 10. Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, what's he, what's he saying there? Well, first of all, Jesus says, keep my commandments. Not the most surprising thing to read in the Bible, right? We've heard that before, keep my commandments. But then he says, I have told you this so that my joy will be in you and that your joy may be complete. I think that's what happened in the passage we read this morning. I think that once these people encountered the grace of God, their hearts were filled with joy, keeping His commandments. Right? That's why they immediately go out and they have a big festival. Their hearts are filled with joy because they know that they're glorifying God in what they do. It's a picture of people who are finally doing what they were made for. They're not just checking boxes. 
but they are truly glorifying God and enjoying Him. And it can be the same with us. We are made to glorify God. Not simply by having good theology or by building the perfect church, but by allowing His Spirit to grab our hearts and turn us into the kinds of people who will live radical lives in pursuit of His glory. And I, I desperately want that for you. I want that for me. I want us to be the kind of people who are so overcome with the reality of Him that we weep over our sin. We weep when we see our sin exposed this morning. But then we party <laughs> over the forgiveness that we receive when we repent in faith. And not only that, but, but I, I pray that God would become so real to us in this room that Mooresville would be forever changed by it. In the same way that Christ went to the cross because of the joy set before him, because his passion was for the redemption of his people, I pray that this church might lay down its life, that might lay down its preferences at the foot of the cross and become a church on mission because our joy is in the redemption of our people in this city. And I know that sounds hard. Maybe it sounds overwhelming. Maybe you feel weak. We are. But take heart. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's pray. Father, we look to this passage and we look to these people and we recognize that we need your spirit to move. There is nothing we can do to manufacture this kind of response. We ask that your spirit would grab a hold of our hearts. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are visiting with us, maybe who are watching us online, who, who today are aware that they have a sense of guilt that they've never known what to do with. And I pray, Lord, that they would run to you for salvation. They would know that you welcome them in Christ. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, God, that you would more and more enable us to die to our sin and live to righteousness. And that we would do it out of joy, knowing that what you have for us is better than anything that we could possibly plan ourselves. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.